I'm Sam Clement, and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. This is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime and is entirely curated by guests on this podcast. Today, we're joined by Caitlin Benedict, radio producer and presenter for the BBC. You can hear her voice sometimes on the BBC Radio 4 film programme, in those bits at the end, and more recently, co-presenting the excellent NB, My Non-Binary Life, with Amru Al-Qaidi. Hello, Caitlin. Hi. Thank, thank you for having you for, me. <laughs> thank you for coming on. My first introduction to your work was the voice at the end of the film program. Uh, like the little tiny singer. Like Thanks the, for listening to the film program podcast. Well, yeah. like the, hey, we're going to talk about a type of film. Here's oh, Caitlin, yeah. who maybe has not seen this type of film before. Yeah, I, I cannot emphasize how few films I had seen before I started working on the film program. It was a total fluke but a very lucky one because i now have a deep love of cinema so that's good <laughs> yeah, that's good like you've, you've went into a job and and, and it's, it's grown with you and then you launched your podcast nb which is incredible oh, thank you <laughs> and that, that was made as a podcast not a radio show like the film program yeah so it's a it's a podcast original uh, the bbc getting in in a very timely fashion into podcasts in the year of our lord 2019 yep. <laughs> um no, there, there have been like a few podcast commissions, but they formalized it and, you know, sent out a request for new ideas. And I was like, well, I have a personal crisis. We could be mining for content here. You know, referring to a crisis, referring to it as a crisis is absolutely nonsense. It was um, a really wonderful, productive time in my life, but um, made much more productive by the fact that I got to uh, make this series, which is basically about questioning your gender identity and asking lots of really specific questions about it and going to people who have had those questions themselves and maybe not coming up with exact answers and decisions for life but just having those conversations like my co-presenter Amri Alcardi is just the most amazing human being they're like a total unicorn and um it was wonderful, wonderful for them to take me on that journey, which I really felt like I was being pulled along by their energy. And we had an amazing producer working with us as well, Ali Adlington, who's also incredible. Every episode is online now. Yeah. Uh, and it's out there. People are listening to this. Yeah. What's the what's the response been like? And obviously it's so personal to you. People are, I guess, coming to you now knowing quite a lot about you. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, it's quite strange but I don't think about it that much and I find that helps um but the response has been really wonderful and super affirming for me like other people saying they're affirmed by hearing me talk about it makes me then feel less uh afraid of putting myself out there because I think um you know when someone goes oh I feel like that as well then it it doubly affirms everything that we've done in the show and that's that's been amazing it feels like, like I've not been able to hear those voices on, on you know, in my sphere of pod or, or radio. But is this, are you hearing from the people on the show, this is the first time they've been able to tell their stories on in sort of quite a big outlet? Yeah, I think most of the people that we spoke to were in the public sphere in some way, but maybe hadn't been asked those questions in that way. Because, I don't know, you, you kind of cut all of the gender studies 101 bullshit and go straight into this is my experience, does that tally with your experience? And um, talking about really weird kind of nuanced things um, 
like how when someone misgenders you like when someone calls me she that's like quite bad I don't enjoy that at all but if someone calls me madam it's absolutely disgusting and that's somehow so much worse and then one of our guests was like absolutely I that that tallies with my experience totally it's it's a process of constantly being affirmed by each other and I think hopefully that's what the guests have got out of it as well. Linking the subject of NB back to our subject, film and mm-hmm. cinema, has doing something like NB and then going back to the film programme, uh, like have you sort of noticed where, you know, film, we all know film can improve, cinema mm-hmm. can improve, but have you noticed sort of like where it falls down particularly poorly? I think casting is the big thing where it's really obvious. Every time a trans story gets to the centre of a big film, so far everyone has... Everyone who's been playing a trans character has been played by a cis actor. Um, there are really, really good trans actors out there. And I just, I, it's obvious that they're not being considered for big roles. And I think, obviously, that's a thing that will change. And there will be big, famous trans actors that come through. Like, I think Laverne Cox could sell a film now. But maybe Jen Richards, who is brilliant, couldn't yet. And, you know, there, there are so few trans men and non-binary people working in like professional acting spheres um but they still you need i think hollywood and you know the wider film industry absolutely needs to do a better job of seeking them out when they're casting um it's not that hard to do on television it seems you know all the trans people on shows like orange is a new black or um with one quite notable exception tales of the city are all played by trans people um and, you know, that's significant. There's a lot of debate. There's a lot of discussion around around that kind of casting. Um, but I think as the opportunities are so sparse for trans actors, they need to be considered first. You're a big cinema fan, I guess, by work, by proxy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you're not having to see films for work, does running time ever come into you know the consideration of what you're about to watch? Yes, always. Absolutely always. I love a short film. Also because, I mean, I refer to myself as the film program's garbage expert. And I really, really have always thought that I was like a trash person with trash tastes. But I think actually what I am is, is someone who appreciates uh, being entertained to an extent. So I'm intrigued by the phrase garbage film taste. What falls into that, into the garbage can? I'm a big fan of crap rom-coms, especially like straight to Netflix stuff. It's absolutely my taste. If you bring up any legitimate actor, I will have found the one thing that got like two star reviews in Cosmo and I'll be like, yeah, I've seen that, but I haven't seen anything else. Um, I have seen all of Lord of the Rings many times. I have seen all the Marvel films. I have not seen anything by, name any legitimate director, Tarkovsky. I haven't seen a single Tarkovsky film. Um, Sorry, film program listeners. They're not as fun as the Marvel films. That's fair. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's about about, um, sharing your expertise, isn't it? So, Mm. you know, we have an amazing uh, producer and presenter who have seen every Tarkovsky film. So why would I need to have seen the Tarkovsky films? They need the other films, the bad films. I see the bad films. When we asked you to choose a film under 90 minutes for this podcast, uh, what, what went through your mind? What was your process? I really thought, oh... 
the thing I should choose is definitely one of the beautiful screwball comedies. Um, and then I went and looked at the running times. And I've got a list here of crushing disappointments is what I've written here, which are all my favorite screwball comedies. So Bring Up Baby, 102 minutes. His Girl Friday, 92 minutes, like honestly. Adam's Rib, 101 minutes. Sylvia Scarlet, 91, which is a, a legitimate bummer. Um, and I Was a Male Ward Bride, 105. You know, those those are all the films that I really love. And I also think that they're the films that make me seem like less of a dumbass for loving, which, you know, is important when you work on a film programme. So, Caitlin, what did you choose for the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest? I chose a film with an 87-minute running time. It is what we do in the shadows. Viago, Deacon and Vladislav are three vampires living together and struggling to cope with modern life. From doing housework to trying to get into nightclubs, they're perfectly normal, except for their immortality, fangs and a thirst for human blood. When their 8,000-year-old housemate Peter turns 20-something Nick into a vampire, the guys must guide him through his newfound eternal life. In return, they are forced to learn a thing or two about modern life. I've got to say, that's not like a brilliantly written synopsis. The sentences run on something chronic. It's a very subdued synopsis. Yeah, it makes it sound like a screwball comedy as well, which is good. This is true. Do you remember when you saw this film for the first time? I saw it when it arrived on Netflix, and when I watched it for the first time, it just like filled me with all of its love and warmth and I thought oh my god this is this is the best comedy I've ever seen and I think I still think that that is true I think it is absolutely it's it's probably not the first one but it's the codifier it's the best one of this kind of kind comedy it is warm it's optimistic it's so funny but it's not sanitized and I think in terms of tone it's reached much further than New Zealand and into the kind of television comedy landscape that we're in right now where um, there's some brutality and some reality to uh, the comedy, but it's ultimately optimistic and it it's kind. And I think that's really significant. And mm-hmm. I think it's significant as well that these are like, like good Kiwis who've made it. <laughs> you know, they have a, a sense of like how important it is to have good stories, kind stories. Tonight we are going out into Wellington Central. It is important that we look good. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I like One it. of the unfortunate things about not having a reflection is that you don't know exactly what you look like. We can give each other feedback and help each other out until we're looking great. I mean, all of the dialogue is improvised in this, but you get a sense of the personality, you know, like they like to laugh. They know vampires have to kill people mm. in this type of story, but that's sort of a by the by. That's a given. These are lovely, sort of losery kind of vampires who live in this rundown house together. Yeah, you can see how much fun they had making it. And you say that about a lot of films and sometimes you mean it as an insult, like, oh, you had so much fun making this that it is terrible and you didn't think about it very much. But you can see two mates in Taika and Jermaine like having a ball but also something that is genuinely artistically valuable coming out of it it's really thrilling to see something that feels that real and and the kind of broiness is is really charming and it's not off-putting in the way that that kind of broiness sometimes comes off you know I'm thinking like Judd Apatow is the exact polar opposite of this it's really significant in the tone of comedy now I think the broiness, as you mentioned, so I think it comes out of a place of love, like it's like a family, like a, a family mm. vibe here, you know, both in terms of what we see on screen, but actually in terms of the production. So this was based on a 
2005 short film. It's charmingly lo-fi, <laughs> <laughs> shot on like a home movie camera. But it's exactly like the, the characters are there. They're just the props don't look as good. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then out off the back of that, from 2005 to 2014, it was the, the film we're going to do at some point. And yeah. they just had a slow writing process for nine years where it was the comfortable thing. Like, we don't need to make this to make a load of money, but we want to make this because we love the idea. And they would just slowly, slowly, slowly work on it. The irony is they spent all that time on the script and, and they say it on the DVD. It's all improvised anyway. The only people who read the script were Jermaine and Taika. They enjoyed writing it so much, they didn't want to stop that nine-year process. Yeah, well, it's obviously, it's like, you know, when really good improv groups get together, like, you know, the groups of actors that, like, Armando Iannucci works with and things like that, they do so much work before the cameras go on and you know that's in games and role play and and rehearsal and all that sort of thing I think for Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi it's it's in the writing that they develop that rapport and then when they get in front of a camera they're just ready to go and you know they talked a lot in that commentary about um like oh did you direct the scene or did I direct the scene like it's like they've shared a brain and they've just completely forgotten what actually happened the woman who plays Jackie is also a director and apparently directed a bunch of her own scenes oh wow um, I did not so know she's that. a good Kiwi director too <laughs> feels like this great collaborative space where people can suggest ideas mm. and, and I cannot imagine Taika or Jermaine saying no don't do that <laughs> um, actually my art's very important don't touch it yeah no it it feels super collaborative and like you know as a queer person and also as an immigrant I am a sucker for any found family narrative like that trope absolutely I can shove it in my face for days um, and this is a really really nice example as well because I think one of the really funny brilliant things about the film is the way that it's being highly referential to earlier vampire films but not in a kind of smug, I went to film school, asshole way. Mm. It's actually like doing it with a lot of love and taking new ideas out of it. So you've got like, Jermaine Clement's character is is, is very much based on um, Gary Oldman in um, the Francis Ford Coppola, Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> and then you've got Interview with a Vampire in Taika Waititi's character. Um, and then I don't know exactly who Deacon is sort of supposed to be. He's kind of kind of grotty, slightly earlier, slightly more anti-Semitic tropey version of Dracula. And then you've got, obviously, Nosferatu, mm. um, Count Orlok in yeah. Peter, who is genuinely a very, very scary character. When he first sort of hisses, I was very scared. And I thought that that, like, set the, the tone really well. But the idea of, like, what if you get every tropey vampire character together in a house share situation? Brilliant. Absolutely. I think it's one of those, it's not too precious about the source material or, mm. or, or, or too anarchy, as mm. you say. It's, uh, we've seen these films, we've all seen these films, we know exactly what we're doing, you know, but we don't need to like labour those references. And it feels like these are very top line as like signifiers almost. Like we need one who looks like Nosferatu. Okay, that's the 8,000 year old guy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, done. On with, the, on with the thing. We should mention as well as it being an improvised comedy, it's shot in this documentary style. And I think that just totally moves it into a whole other genre Mm. whilst they are vampires like so obviously and all of the action is very vampire specific I don't feel I I wouldn't instinctively put this in as a vampire film No, it feels like a flat share it feels like The Office I think so many of my favourite pieces of art are where the fantastical meets the mundane like I love Terry Pratchett and I think that this is spiritually kind of along the same lines where you've got 
vampires, woo, but you've actually got a flat share comedy. Like that, that feels kind of almost boring and obvious. So then when you've got really brilliant people breathing like a warmth and depth into these characters who could just be cutouts of any old vampire, um, that's where like the real deafness comes from. And that's why this is so much more significant than it might have been. Because if you look at the top line of any of this, you're like, oh yeah, some blokes made that film, yeah. Like the words vampire parody or something like that, vampire satire, don't really make me want to see your film. And it feels like maybe I would have seen that film late night on like Channel 5 or something. But when it's these people yeah. <laughs> making this film. What I also like is they, they do respect the genre. Like they, the special effects are really good. Yeah. <laughs> they, the, the makeup is amazing. The costumes are amazing. They're taking it very seriously, but they want to goof around in a high production value yeah. sort of environment. I read um, today that the most expensive shot no one even notices the effect that they've done on that shot, which is that they, there is a mirror in the background of the um, the scene when they're running around chasing Nick before he becomes a vampire and editing all of the reflections out of the mirror in all of the, that shot costs like $80,000 or something and no one noticed. <laughs> So, you know, attention to detail as well. Like Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Like they, they clearly love it and they want to stick to the rules that, you know, yeah. the, the, the preset sort of vampire rules that they, they follow. I think there's like a moment where, you know, you're in really good and loving hands with the whole vampire genre. Um, when Stu, uh, the IT guy, um, is kind of showing the vampires modern human life. Um, and he's got a YouTube video of a sunrise up. And that's that is the most mundane version of that really overblown, fantastically soapy scene in uh, Interview with a Vampire where Brad Pitt is sitting in the back of a 1920s New Orleans cinema weeping openly as he watches the Sunrise film for the first time. And it's got a voiceover being like, and I saw the sunrise for the first time in 200 years. You know, that's so... It's, like a, it's, a, very, it's a smart joke. Delicate smart as joke. well. Stu is great. Really like him. At first, I wanted to kill him, but now I'm glad I spent the time to get to know him. Yeah, of course, he looks delicious with his big red cheeks, but we've all got an agreement that we're not going to eat stew, right? Right. The guys upstairs, they're loving him. At the start, they were a bit, oh, who's this human you bring into the house? But it took them literally two minutes, and they like him more than they like me, I reckon. We, we, we meet the sort of the vampires named on the back of the box and then some new characters to Nick, who is a victim who mm. becomes a vampire and he brings Stu, who's his best mate. And Stu, <laughs> Stu is literally Tyker's friend, who is an IT guy. That is the best thing about Stu. Like that guy did not know he was going to be a main character in the film. He is not an actor. He's an actual IT guy. And he just sits there being like, yeah, all right. And then at some point they obviously made him film the whole scene where he is savaged by werewolves, spoiler <laughs> alert. And he must have realised at that point that he might like end up in the film, surely. But they've, they've done such a good job of making him feel comfortable. I read as well that um, in New Zealand and in Australia, you often can't make a whole career out of, you know, the film arts. Uh, so a lot of the actors also have other jobs, but um, the woman who plays the female of the two human detectives... Right police officers she's she's a school teacher some of them are directors some of them never act apart from this but Stu is so precious 
as a character and as a real human being. And those things are obviously indistinguishable from each other because that's just him. I love I love that. It's, I didn't realize it was Taika's real life friend. <laughs> That's such a nice. It just adds to this sort of nice communal sort of experience. Like, yeah, yeah. my friend Stu can come into the film, and in in the film, he also basically plays their best friend Stu. And I love how it changes the dynamic in the house. Like mm. a beloved pet has come in, and yeah. they all it changes. He changes everybody's lives. <laughs> and Deacon um, knitting him a scarf and going, "It's really nice loose knit. I think you'll really like it. Soft wool, you know. Like it's so, it's really charming." It's like a real antidote to that, like, big, buffy masculinity. It's so soft. Before then, we only see humans as victims, and they talk about, you know, uh, humans coming in to be eaten, and, and they sort of play with their food almost, with Nick. Yeah. Uh, and, and the worms, the, the the great gag with the spaghetti, mm. uh, and, and, and sort of alluding to the, the sort of mind control bit yeah. of, of, of being a vampire. And it's just sort of and a And that's nice... a reference as well. That's a reference to a film I haven't seen, but that's... Um, there's a scene in The Lost Boys. Ah. Basically, they, they make it look like the spaghetti has turned into worms, but they actually show it on screen turning into worms, whereas Taika says in the in the commentary, in our version, we don't have it turning into worms because the camera is not hypnotised. <laughs> That's, uh, again, like yep. excellent sort of thing. And yep. I do like how the documentary crew become part of the narrative later on. Yeah. Uh, and one is savaged. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that poor guy. Which is also like a bit of a, whilst the film does have violence in it throughout, when something like that happens, it's sort of, and Stu sadly gets savaged as well, it, uh, it it's, you know, sort of makes you go, oh, wow, okay, this is quite a serious film. It's lulled me into this very comfortable space. It's got a few points that are that absolutely anchor it in drama, like not in reality, because, you know, it's still like vampires and werewolves savaging each other. But the scene where Peter gets burnt, which again is very similar to a scene in Interview with a Vampire, is gruesome and horrifying and you forget that you're watching comedy for a minute. Terry Pratchett talks about this in a really beautiful way. If you're doing good comedy, you need tragic relief. It's the opposite of comic relief. You need that moment where you realise that the stakes are real for those characters, otherwise you can't care about them. Okay, so I wanted to have a quick chat about flat responsibilities because, uh, guys, I think that we're not all pulling our weight here. We're not just pointing the finger at you, Deacon. You're a cool guy, but you're not pulling your weight in the flat. Oh, I'm glad to hear that I'm cool. No, that's not the point, though. Yeah, no, it's it's not a flat meeting about how cool you are. I do my flat chores. No, you don't. No, you yes, don't. I do. That's why we're having the flat meeting. The point is, Deacon, that you have not done the dishes for five years. Vladislav is right. It's unacceptable to have so many bloody dishes all over this bench like this. I'm so embarrassed when people come over but here. What does it matter? You bring them over, you kill them! Going into this film, were you a Taika Waititi, Jermaine Clement fan? No, I hadn't. As everyone had at that stage, I was pretty familiar with Flight of the Concords. Um, I couldn't have told you which was Brett and which was Jermaine, which I feel is acceptable and also probably is going to get New Zealanders angry at me because, you know, we'll always we'll always be like, oh, I don't know what they're doing until they get successful. And then we're like, ah, oh, well, Australia, New Zealand, basically the same place. <laughs> we'll claim them as our own. But I do feel a great deal of, like, um, pride in... And especially in Taika Waititi, you know, doing exactly what he's wanted to do. And when they filmed Thor Ragnarok in Australia, Taika made sure that 
the local Indigenous community, the local mob were like involved in all of the production processes. You know, they had people who'd never work in film production from the local Indigenous community coming in and like getting to shadow and do kind of their first film job as part of that. Um, and, you know, he's put heaps and heaps of money into Maori communities and Indigenous Australian communities as well. So he's a legitimately good dude. Mm. And I'm really, this is this is the film that like proves that i think it's it's so spiritually pure you know he's he's always thinking about like his roots and and where he's come from like if you see some of his earlier films they're literally about that mm. but they're all made with like government funding uh, arts council funding and he hasn't forgotten that like mm. even this film is heavily supported uh, by those organizations and then yeah bringing like he's bringing the next uh, four movie to uh, australia as well like he he wants to sort of grow this community yeah. uh, which is great it's nice to see often so many so often filmmakers leave their home <laughs> and uh, and go to hollywood and don't don't come back but like that's his home yeah and now i've seen i think all of his other features and i adore them all i just think he's got a brilliant i don't know exactly what the right word is for it but he's he's got the kind of like deeply optimistic voice that i think is really necessary and it feels really fresh right now because i think i mean you know we talked about me being the garbage film guy but i I think a lot of the reason that I thought I liked garbage films is that I want light in my films. And I think that um, a lot of the cinema of certainly my lifetime that has been decreed as being artistically valid has been really dark and really dour and totally lacking in light. Um, and I, th I hope that he's part of a generation of filmmakers who are kind of bringing that back to the mainstream in an artistic way i think he it's, it's like an extension of his personality but i think as he becomes more prolific like it's sort of almost a surprise that like he's consistently working and then all of a sudden he's making some of the biggest films in the world mm -hmm. but then he's going back to new zealand he's exec producing uh, two spin-offs of of what we do in the shadows in fact one actually shot in new zealand with the two um, policemen and and then the american version of what we do in the shadows and like he's he doesn't forget where he's come from and, and that's great but also he's going to inspire well, he's going to prove that this type of comedy hopefully can make money let's make some more of it and yes, inspire please. creatives to show this type of thing on screen because there was a period in like the early noughties where it was very Seth Rogen and Judd Apatow heavy mm. and it wasn't really a nice place to be in after yeah. a while and and I think this is like a this feels a bit fresh and maybe a little bit simpler but all the better for it yeah and I think that Seth Rogen, Judd Apatow brand of comedy is very easy to dismiss because it's nasty. Mm. It's nasty and it's not super creative in a lot of ways. So I think that it really alienates a big part of the audience before they feel like getting on board. Whereas I feel like this is this is something that really invites you in no matter who you are. You know, because it's an inc inc like almost completely male cast and I'm really compelled by it still. And I think that the pairing of Taika's warmness and Jermaine's kind of sarcasm has has made a really like powerful match here. I think they're also relatable characters, even though they are vampires. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like uh, Taika's character is the one who's talking about who's going to do the, the rotor, the washing yeah. rotor. And we've all been there. 
Yeah, we've all seen that. Are you a Viago? <laughs> right, maybe, maybe. <laughs> I love the love the the bow ties. Um. I'm definitely the Vladislav of my house, unfortunately. I might even be the deacon. That would be really bad, right? <laughs> but it's sort of, and I love how this film like lulls you in. Like vampires doing very mundane things before the sort of really supernatural stuff mm. kicks in. Before the maybe like the the sort of a plot or whatever sort of comes in. It's yeah. let's just show them goofing around for ten minutes. Yeah, and doing all of the normal flat share things, but with vampire stuff and when they have a household argument suddenly they're like rising up off the floor and hissing yes. at each other but it's still that's very relatable to me you know well, i love i love that they do sort of throw that stuff in and and i guess you know being in new zealand i think they thanked uh, peter jackson's company a lot mm. uh, using yeah, like first orc ears the, as, uh, as vampire ears and things yeah <laughs> oh wow i didn't realize <laughs> in the in the credits he's he's the first with thanks to peter jackson and then i think the next few names are all peter jackson company people as well it's a it's a small film industry, um, and I'm I'm glad they're all supporting each other. Absolutely, but like, why wouldn't you as well? Like we've got this great idea, but we could just do it with some levitation and some painting people out of mirrors and, <laughs> and, and that kind oh of thing. Oh my god, that must be such a ball ache. It sort of catches you off guard because of the documentary format. It looks mm. so lo-fi. Like, but it you... means that it's got to be so perfect because like you're not going to suspend your disbelief if you can see a pixel out of place. You know, because of the mockumentary style, it, it makes it much more high stakes, those effects. So, you know, hats off to them. They did an amazing job on it. This is the second mockumentary in the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. Uh, first one is This Is Spinal Tap. Ugh. And it's kind of interesting because that was often cited as like one of the first sort of big, big, big mockumentaries. Uh, even though when talking on that episode, we learned the format had been around for a lot longer. Mm. Um, but this feels like maybe the sort of a, a modern peak for mockumentary. Yeah. I, I mean, I kind of think that it's kind of got to be the end of it for a bit. It, it perfected it so well. Um, and I think on television in the years before, uh, you know, you had Thick of It and that was so brilliant and so high profile for so long. And then you have something like this and then, oh, actually, everyone, we've perfected it. Mm. Give it a rest for like 20 years and it can come back when you've got something interesting to do with the technology again. Because also Spinal Tap has got that real graininess, whereas this feels more modern. And I feel like they might have filmed a part of like most of the talking heads on like a DSLR or something like that, because they've got that kind of like slightly more modern looking depth of field going on with the documentary style. So it, it does feel like very of its time in the same way Spinal Tap feels absolutely of its time. Absolutely, um, aping modern documentary practice. Yeah. Even we even see a thanks to the New Zealand Documentary Board at the start of the. Yeah, film. which is not a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting ready to show what we do in the shadows to a public audience in our film festival. Very excited to do so. How would you add an event element to this uh, screening? Okay, so I've got a question for you about the particularities of this film festival. So the main event is obviously what we do in the shadows under 90 minutes. Could we start at sunset with Nosferatu and then do the 1930s Dracula and then do Bram Stoker's Dracula and then do Interview with the Vampire and then do the one with Aaliyah, which I think is amazing, even though it is absolutely shit and then at sunrise play what we do in the shadows. I like where you're coming from with this. <laughs> Some of those films are over 90 minutes though. Could we just play the first so 90 this minutes of them? Maybe. Well, maybe, maybe they happen to be on in a venue next yeah. door 
So it's not a not affiliated with the festival, but it's just adjacent. Yeah, totally. Uh, so there just happens to be a cinema next it's door, like which is doing a movie marathon. Fringe. It's yep. the Fringe Festival Absolutely. of your 90 Minute Film Festival. <laughs> 90 Minutes Less Fringe Fest, which shows films only over 90 minutes. Yeah. And that's happening next door. So that, that just happens to be doing this. But then absolutely, if your show happened to start at the end of uh, Queen of the Dams, I think, uh, <laughs> then absolutely. What a great idea. <laughs> yeah, because I think, you know, that's that's how Taika and Jermaine would want it, surely. <laughs> and then you're in the dark, but after dawn. And that's also in the spirit of the thing, I think. Uh, that uh, Wonderful. What a wonderful idea. Would you add any sort of uh, particular embellishments to, to what we do in the shadows in terms of like, I don't know, thinking of what might be on the concession stand or, uh, I don't know, seating arrangements for the film? Are we watching this film in a coffin or is that just not the done thing? <laughs> I mean, probably like red slurpees or something, wouldn't it be? I don't think, I think being very comfortable, I, I may have gone on uh, off mic uh, to you about this before, but uh, I believe very, very firmly in total comfort and a lack of anxiety in the cinema. And I want everyone to have a nice time everyone to have enough room and to feel relaxed so they can enjoy a good comedy probably with oh you could have those um you know those sweets that have teeth yes yeah. i think they're called tangfastics listeners do let us know no producer louis says no absolutely not called that <laughs> they're called fang fangs we're gonna have uh sweets with teeth and red slurpees and I mean, vampire stuff is very easy to theme, isn't it? It's almost like a bit of a cop out. Uh, I would have really proper good New Zealand chocolate. Well, this sounds like an awesome screening. Also, quite an epic screening for the ninety minutes or less film fest. Um, but yeah, we'll I just went that. to the festival of the midnight sun, <laughs> so I'm into all night screenings now. Uh, if you could invite one special guest, who would it be? It would have to be Taika Waititi, right? I just really want to meet him. I just want to like hang out with him, you know. I think he would be uh, a hell of a lot of fun, especially in a, in, in a, in a screening like this. Yeah. <laughs> also, I really think that he's one of those few directors who legitimately loves his own work in a way that I don't find deeply pretentious. Mm. I think he probably enjoys... You talk to a lot of directors, like if you work on the film program or make the Picture House podcast, for example, um, you talk to a lot of directors who just don't watch their own work after they've made it and they find it really traumatic and they hate it so much. Uh, I reckon... Taika would like to sit through his films again and watch them with an audience and enjoy it and um, take great pleasure in the good comedy that he's made. So I would like to see him do that. On a publicity level, promoting this, how do you think the Radio 4 film programme would review what we do in the shadows? Well, we don't do reviews, so uh, <laughs> that's your issue right there. It's very hard to say. I think our great presenter, Antonia Quirk, would be deeply enthusiastic about it. And I think she would meet... Uh, Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clement and interview them and then afterward would be like oh they're very handsome aren't they because that is usually what happens <laughs> sorry Antonia <laughs> well that's just great we got some publicity now for, for the screening we got lots of confectionery and, uh, and, and, a, and a fringe marathon going on next door this is going to be a great event so finally do you think this film could be or should be longer than 90 minutes no it is absolutely perfect um I wouldn't change a single second of it. And I think that, what is it? It's 87. So yeah, it could have two more minutes, I guess. But it's it seems perfect. They did three initial cuts. One that focused on the story, one that focused on the comedy, and then the origin, the one that ended up basically being the film, which is a mixture of both. Um, and I think 
the story one was a bit longer, but I think they made the right call. It's perfectly edited. Absolutely. And no mockumentary should be over 90 minutes anyway. So there we have it. What we do in the shadows is in the 90 minutes or less film fest. Caitlin, where can people find more of your work online or listen to your shows? You can download the Film Programme podcast from wherever you get your good podcasts from, especially BBC Sounds. You can download NB from BBC Sounds and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I uh, tweet a lot of shit at Caitlin Benny. Awesome. On NB, will you be doing more? We will be doing something. Oh, that's very exciting. Well, listeners, I highly recommend listening to NB if you have not already, and and I look forward to what the something is. Thank you for listening. Please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Uh, It all helps as a new independent podcast. We're also available on Spotify, all good podcatchers, and on 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90 with a 9-0. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The show is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick. And our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 